Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews this morning. Great New Testament book, thick and rich with meaning that's deep, but not so deep that we shouldn't apply it. And this morning is a sermon to apply. And a lot of the uh, work I do in the pulpit is teaching work. I don't apologize for that, but I don't want to do it to the neglect of application. And one of the most significant phrases in the New Testament for my own heart is one that's embedded in the paragraph that we're going to unpack and look at. So let me just read Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come and then the greater and more perfect tent, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own, his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The phrase that I was referencing that's in this paragraph is found in verse 14. It's the idea of our conscience being purified from dead works to serve the living God. Every week when I study, I basically take time and look at the English text and look at the Greek text. If it's an Old Testament text, I'll look at the Hebrew, but I unpack it. I print out the paragraph before me and scribble all over it and draw lines and look for connecting words and things that tie together. There's a lot in here, for instance, about the conscience. And so I found those two words and I see what's happening there. I'm prayerfully considering what the spirit of God wants me to teach my own heart and then to teach you. And then I go to about 10, 11, maybe 12 resources between commentaries and books and articles and things I print out and scribble all over those things and write notes in the margins and try to put all that together. And then at the end of the week, I basically open a clean word document in front of me. And it's as if I pile all the different phrases and ideas and scribbles and things that I've done and highlight. And it's like, it's piled all on a table with a you know, a tablecloth. And it's like, I just sort of throw it all onto the floor. I don't actually do that, but in my mind I do. And then I try to start clean with the text and with my word document and put an outline together. And then 
what comes to me as I type is basically what I'm communicating to you. I create the, the landing lights for me to fly the plane and try to land for us to have a coherent sermon together. I try to ask the questions that you're going to ask while you read the text with me and think about it. And hopefully I'm anticipating the questions you're asking and I'm asking in my study and then answering them for you in the sermon to try to make it clear and hopefully powerful for you. But occasionally with all of this work that I do, I basically sometimes find a chapter or a sermon that says it better than I think I can pull it together to say something that grabs me or grips me. And I had done all the spade work two weeks ago, studying chapter nine, verses one through 14, doing all the spade work, all the commentary work and everything. And then when I began to write the sermon, I realized I had too much material. And so I only preached verses one through 10 last week. And so this week, I think I'm preaching 11 through 14 That's our text before us, and I'm doing it from a study where I I grabbed a sermon from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and it grabbed me. And so for the last two weeks, not only have I done the preparatory work that I always do, but I sat and just underlined and thought and meditated hard from Spurgeon's sermon. And I don't often do this, but I'm preaching it from my voice, from my words and my thoughts, and there's, there's stuff that I've put in it. But then there's a flow of thought that Spurgeon had put together in his sermon. It's called The Purging of the Conscience. So you can look that up, and it's uh, look it up later maybe. I don't know. Um, and it was reposted by Answers in Genesis, which you know of them from the Ark in Louisville, Kentucky. And also, they actually are behind the VBS curriculum that we've used a couple summers in a row, this summer included. Um, they do great work, and I think they grabbed a hold of that sermon because it's, it's just chocked full with application. And Spurgeon's helping me this morning to try to apply the blood of Jesus to our consciences because we need to have our consciences sprinkled thoroughly clean so we can be happy in Jesus. The big contradiction in the Christian life is having a conscience that's sullied with sin or guilt, Past guilt, present guilt, future guilt that you don't even know about. Guilt is like oil and water with the conscience. You can't have guilt and joy in the Christian life. You just can't do it. We shouldn't be guilt-ridden because we have the gospel. But listen, when you are saved, you get it in that moment. And perhaps for a short season, you get it. The gospel was all I had and all I could cling to to deal with my sin problem. It's the remedy. You got the infusion of the medicine to help cleanse the conscience and the heart and you feel better and you feel lifted and you feel happy. But then something happens as you journey in the Christian life, you still sin. You do wrong things. You do things that you know you shouldn't do and you do them anyway, even though the Holy Spirit's telling you not to do it. That messes your conscience up. You also do things or did things that, you're, that the Holy Spirit in you is awakening in your mind. You're going, oh boy, I did that back in the day, or I did that recently, or I did that today and should not have done it. 
It's sort of a unknowing sin where you didn't think about it before you did it, but you were doing it. And then the Holy Spirit puts his finger on you and suddenly you have oil and water in the conscience. It's like water in the motor and it's messing things up and it's clunking along. I, for instance, overfilled my gas, I mean, my gasoline lawnmower with oil and too much oil created all kinds of smoke. And I about destroyed the lungs of one of my 12 year olds who was trying to mow the grass. And I had to take that lawnmower over and pour out about 80% of the oil that I'd put in it so that it ran correctly. We need 100% of our consciences cleansed of the sin that's inside of us that smokes up our vision. It causes us to splutter. It causes us to choke and gag. And instead, we need to fly in the Christian life. I believe that The chief end of man, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is right. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Christian life should not be joyless. It should not be um, just functional. It should not be going through the motions. It shouldn't be robot-like. I'm supposed to do this, so I will do this. Yes, Lord. It should be something where we are sailing and enjoying people, enjoying relationships, enjoying friendship in the gospel. We should be serving the Lord with gladness. If you look at it in our text, you'll see where it says in verse 14, we're called to be purified in our conscience from dead work. Something's dead in us in how we do it. It's death works. It's dead religion works. That's how you should define that. Not just sin works. These are dead Christian religious works that we have to be cleansed from. We're going to unpack that later. But the opposite of the dead work religious life is serving the living God, which serving here is different than the word doulos. We're not talking about just slave labor service and we are called to be slaves of Christ. This is the Greek word latruo, which is a worship word. It's the Romans 12.1 being a living sacrifice, which is pure and acceptable worship. Word worship, there is latruo. It's vertical worship service where you serve the Lord with gladness and joy. It's service. That is the stuff of the Christian life. This is when you are truly living. It's beyond the religious defilement of dead works. First John 1 John 1.4 is true. I am writing these things. This is a different gospel voice for the same concept. I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Complete joy. This is the point of the Christian's life. So what blocks the joy? Well, it's a sullied conscience that's not clear. It's a hardened heart. I thought maybe a way to introduce this text was from something that hit my heart a few weeks ago. It was from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, you may turn there in your Bibles. This is where Isaiah goes into the inner sanctum. Remember the context of Hebrews 9 is talking about the tabernacle, which was the the tabernacle that was mobile and moving with the children of Israel through the wilderness for those 40 years. It was the tent that was set up and we described it in its length and width. And, and it was a, it's a big rectangle, but it basically has an outer court and then two rooms, a first section and a second section. 
Well, the picture here is of the tabernacle now that is the temple in Jerusalem. Same concept, same furniture placement. And the tribes are all around it, organized in the 12 tribes of Israel. And you have a representative that's going into the Holy of Holies. And the one who goes in in Isaiah 6 is Isaiah, supposedly the most godly man as the representative for the Lord to the people. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. If you look at verse one of Isaiah six, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Let's stop there. What is significant about Uzziah's death? Some people will just open this up and say, well, it's just that he clocked out and he died. That's it. It's not true at all because the storyline can be picked back up from second second chronicles chapter 26 you can turn there if you want to or listen along second chronicles 26 5 describes who Uzziah is and what happened to him Uzziah took the throne and the position as king in Jerusalem at age 16 you 16-year-olds, how many people are 16 out there, right? Imagine taking the throne at 16. He reigned for 52 years, and he actually did a very good job as king. He did a good job. He did such a good job that it messed him up, though. Look at verse 5 of Second Chronicles 26. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord... God made him prosper. So it's kind of a, you know, as long as you're vertical, you're doing good, and he prospered. But incredibly, you, you can't imagine this, but pride struck, Second Chronicles 26, 15. In Jerusalem, he made engines invented by skillful men. That qualifier would be a Jeff Crotz qualifier. I made engines invented by people that really know how to do that because I never would to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. So he, he engineered all kinds of things through engineers that were um, fortifying Jerusalem. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelous, marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, key phrase here, when he was strong, he grew proud to his Pride comes before what? Destruction, to his destruction before a fall, right? For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple. Here it is. He's going right into the courtyard, the first room, and I think the second room into the inner sanctum. He enters right into the, into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. The altar of incense, if you look at Hebrews 9, you'll see in um, verse, verses two and three, the tent was prepared. The first section in which um, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It was, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. That's where I think he was. He was acting above the law. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't of the tribe of Aaron. Is lifted in pride. He ignored 80 priests who run in to intervene and pull him out. Remember, he had a 52-year run of goodness and people loved him and they wanted to save his life. 
The inner sanctum at this point, when it is being defiled, by the way, is a burning inferno of death. You do not want to do that. And 80 priests, look how they are described. They're called in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles, men of valor. Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, risking their lives, basically. They withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. This is a dead work, by the way. But for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor for the Lord God. He's doing a good thing with a bad motive. He's doing a good thing that he was not supposed to be doing. He was doing a good thing with a hard heart. That's a dead work. That's dead religion. What does that do for him or to him? And Uzziah was angry. This is his heart while he's supposed to be worshiping, right? Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out. He finally woke up and said, I'm out of here because the Lord had struck him And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household governing the people of the land. This is a believer, I think, who is unable. He has, because of his prideful flesh and his unwillingness to serve in the way that God wanted him to serve, which would be to allow the priest to go in, not himself. He sa- he isolated himself. It's like a, almost like a, I don't know. Just think about it. You're, it's like you're a Christian, but you can't fellowship. You, you know that you want to enjoy your son's rule and be honoring him and enjoying that. He can't do that. He's dying physically on the outside and grieving on the inside. It's a hellish existence. Now, what's the difference between Isaiah and Uzziah? Isaiah and Uzziah, say that over and over and see what happens. Uzziah inappropriately went into the second section, whereas Isaiah went in appropriately, but still a sinful man. He saw the Lord, Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And the one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has, your guilt is taken away. Your sin and your sin is atoned for. Now stop there. Where is he? He's again in the same room. He's seeing a vision 
of the Lord. He's melting, creating a woe judgment upon himself, saying, woe is me. I'm unclean in my speech. I dwell with people who are unclean. But again, this is the most holy place. Verse 4 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, this is again the intersectum having the golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense here, obviously there's a burning coal that can be lifted by an angel and put to Isaiah's mouth. That's symbolic of the Lord atoning for Isaiah's sin and making him worthy. What's the difference between Isaiah and Uzziah? It's the year Uzziah died. So you have this example, and then you have Isaiah as an example. Both go into the same place. Both go in to do the same work. One has the wrong heart, the wrong disposition. The others has the right heart and humility, is humbled by his own sin. He's cleansed, and he's launched in Isaiah chapter 6, 9 into preaching. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The voice of the Lord said, he said, here am I, send me. Two entirely different responses and two entirely different outcomes. One is benched until death and one is sent to preach. Hebrews chapter nine, back to our text is asking you this question this morning. Are you Uzziah or are you Isaiah? That's it. You're one or the other. When you pray, you're either praying earnestly and sincerely from a cleansed conscience. You're either preaching, teaching from a cleansed conscience. You're either hearing the word of God being preached from a cleansed conscience, or this is dead works religion. It's one or the other all of the time without exception. And so what? Is it for you? You don't want to be doing dead works. We all are guilty of them. This is the verse 14, dead works. We want to serve a living God. What are dead works? Defining this term is going to be so important to understanding what this means. It's not just sinning. We all sin, but this is a specific category of sin that we need to run from. This is when you pray, but your heart is a million miles away. Oh, it looks good on the outside. Your words might be theologically precise. You might even be saying all the right things. You might be crying and sincere in your prayer life, either personally or individually or corporately or publicly. But if your heart is far from the Lord in your thinking, then that's a dead work. What about your singing? You might sing well, you might sing on key, you might sing in unison. But if your heart is far from the Lord, that's a dead work. What what does that mean? That means that you're doing something that's deadening your heart. You're doing damage to yourself. It's like when your heart is hurting itself or vulnerable. This is what we have to correct spiritually. It's a Uzziah work. We're not so different from Uzziah when we sing, preach, or pray in a dead way, or hear preaching or hear teaching with a dead heart. 
I don't mean that you're not spiritually alive as a Christian. I just mean you can fall prey to being alive, but dead at the same time. That's what Hebrews is warning us from. It's where we neglect the conscience work that we need to do. We need to inform our conscience. We talked a lot about our conscience last week, what we have, how we have in the inner man given us something that tells us with an inner voice of what to do or not do, why to do it, why not to do it. And the Holy Spirit has to grab hold of our conscience as a believer. And we need to inform it with the gospel to quiet the stains of sin and to lean and rely on the atonement of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. We want to be what Romans 12 calls living sacrifices. No animal in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant was a dead sacrifice when it was offered. There weren't dead fish that were put up on the altar, right? These were living animals, bulls or goats or sheep or pigeons. The life, according to Leviticus, I think it's chapter 16 or 17, the life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's Hebrews 9, 22. We'll be talking about that soon. There has to be a living sacrifice for it to be acceptable. As a Christian, though, we are the living sacrifice that doesn't get killed. We're called to be living and on the altar and stay on the altar in our worship of service with joy. That's what's acceptable to the Lord. Our problem is we get up on the altar and then we want to what? crawl back off. And we say, well, I'm good. I'm a Christian. I was on the altar. I'm in. Now I want to crawl off. Well, that's unacceptable. And it's not just unacceptable because it does, does dishonor to the Lord to be a Christian who just goes through the motions. It's also, as we've talked about, very dangerous. You might think you're a Christian and say, I, I had joy for a moment, like the parable of the soils where there was life for a little while, but then you're not really a Christian because everything withers away when the trials come on. The other dangerous dynamic is that you could just be on the sidelines. You're just isolated like in a leper colony. You you can't enjoy the Christian life. Your testimony is bad, but most importantly, your heart is hardening and you're you're spin cycling. You're just, you, you don't know how to move on. You're just stuck in a rhythm that is deadening and hurting other people. Lukewarm Christianity or half Christianity is something that God spews out of his mouth. Charles Spurgeon, here's a quote from that sermon. The Lord cannot endure a worship which is half dead. All worship must be presented at blood heat. The warmth of life must be there. We conceal sins, don't we? Isaiah was open. Uzziah was closed. Isaiah went in going through the, or Uzziah went in going through the motions. Isaiah was willing to be opened up by the Lord. Both men were broken down. One was broken down to his own detriment. The other was broken down for life. We need to be willing to see what's going on inside, to pray about it and say, God, change me. What about the wrong influences that you're willing to walk through and be around? The wrong relationships, bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 
Here's another Spurgeon quote. Can we walk through such a graveyard as this world without being defiled even unconsciously? In Jewish law, a man who was defiled and did not know it was still under penalty. And when he did discover it, someone needed to take the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifer, of a heifer, which would have been these ashes that were mixed with water and they had to be spread over a person, even for the sins of ignorance. Look back at verse 13 quickly. It says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What does that mean? This is basically the author of Hebrews summarizing a lot of ways that the law in its ceremonies would externally cleanse people. If you came in contact with a dead person, if you were in contact with a dead bone, if you came, somebody died in your house and you had to work through burial. These are unintended consequences often that would put you out of bounds in terms of being able to fellowship with people. And if you fellowshiped with people and you knew that you were in the wrong and you had not made atonement, you had not followed the law, then the curses of God would befall you and often your family. But there was a way that was made through this sprinkling of blood, through physical blood, material blood that would cleanse the ashes of a heifer. A heifer, there weren't many of them. They would have a couple red heifers that would come along through the years. They would slay that heifer. They would melt it to ashes and they would keep those ashes and use them very sparingly and mixing them with water to cover people's sins. It's a picture of Christ, actually. It's a type of Christ. Spurgeon, he re-preached this section of scripture because he belabored that point so much in one sermon that he had to re-preach it in this way, applicationally. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to genuinely take us to application because we can't trust physical material. We need to trust spiritual, the spiritual reality of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ was physical blood. But it's so much greater than just physical blood. In the Old Testament, you were, they were taking physical blood and they would apply it to the head or to the hand of a person. It's a grotesque act. It was the idea of, look, we have to meet a, a deadening effect. Sin effect affected our world and created death. And so contact with death meant you had to take something that was dead to reconcile this kind of exposure. It was to decontaminate you physically, basically. It's gross. Blood is gross. Blood, blood nauseates most normal people. All you nurses out there, you know, you don't, you, you just get past it, right? And doctors, they can see blood. It's no problem. Uh, my wife can see blood. No problem for her. My kids, when they come to me with blood, and they often do, I'm always like this. <laughs> Okay, figure it out. All right, toughen up. Okay, is that a severed artery? Let me grab that. I mean, it, you know, you got to work it through because it's blood, man. It's gross. It's meant to be gross. It would splatter on the altar and hit somebody's clothes, right? As they were trying to get cleansed. They didn't want to go through it. The NBA finals, the last game, the guy gets, the raptor gets hit in the face, right? He falls to the ground. Blood's going down his face. That's gross, but it's entertaining, right? And so they zero in on the camera there. You can look at it later, 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 not now. But blood is gross, but Christ's blood is not gross. Christ's blood is precious because we understand 
the cross was grotesque, is grotesque, and the descriptions are meant to stir us and grieve us. But the descriptions are very generalized in scripture in terms of Christ was scourged, Christ was crucified. We understand the implications of those words, but really the point of the blood of Christ is that it was physical blood that was shed from the eternal second member of the Trinity who took on humanity, becoming the God man who could physically shed blood, but he did it as God who was man. And so this blood is As Charles Spurgeon put it, God's blood that's applied to us. God's atoning work that is applied to our account where we can say, I embrace that sacrifice for the cleansing of everything that I've done. I am letting go of something that I've done. I'm letting go of a former manner of life. I'm letting go of the sin I did yesterday. I'm saying, Jesus, I confess it. I own it. There might be repercussions from what I've done, but it's cleansed. It's washed. It's forgiven for anyone who will repent and believe. And everyone who is a believer who will but apply the sprinkled blood of Christ to our conscience. Everything before that act is a, the act of the cross is a shadow of the true substance. Only Christ is effective for our forgiveness. Only Christ was effective for anyone's forgiveness, even under the old covenant. The real atonement was to come under the new covenant. We look back to the past atonement that was for us. That's why verse 14 says, if you'll look back there, how much more will the blood of Christ atone? How much more? Speaking of Christ, by the way, second member of the Trinity, Paul, um, I don't necessarily believe he was the author of Hebrews, but he could have been. He's a candidate for it. But Paul called Jesus, Jesus. He called Jesus, the Lord Jesus. He called Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not first, middle, and last name. These are titles for Christ, who is God, our Savior. What does Christ mean? Christ means the anointed one. There's great intentionality behind that word. Jesus came as your Messiah. He came under the anointing of the Father. God the Father sending his son, Jesus Christ humbly submitting like David did to have the horn of oil poured over him by the prophet Samuel. Jesus was anointed for us, came separated for us, to be our savior, to be the lamb of God, all of our sins. If all of the sins of everyone who's ever been born were part of my sin account, Jesus as the anointed Messiah would still be the sufficient atonement to cover it all. That's how powerful the intentionality of Christ who came to be our savior And to cleanse us as the anointed one, cleansing our conscience. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and life, what? As a believer, life more abundantly, not life stuck in a leper colony. 
not life stuck in isolation, not a living hell life of what it could have should have and how can I do better? It's a life of a cleansed conscience where the blood is greater than all of our sin. It's his submission to the father that was a glad submission. Look at Hebrews 12, two, skipping ahead, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of of our faith as he's going to the cross. What's his heart attitude? It says for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus came with purifying power from heaven. The emphasis here in verse 14 is on the blood. It's not on Jesus' prayer life. It's not on Jesus' miracle ministry. It's not on Jesus' teaching ministry, all of which are powerfully beneficial for our life. The intercessory work of Christ now praying for us is powerfully necessary for our life. But the focus here is on Jesus' blood, which is a synonym for Jesus' death. Jesus' death. That's the focus here. Not even the resurrection is the focus here for the cleansed conscience. How do you get to the cleansed conscience? You go to the cross. That's why we have that symbol there. It's the idea of the blood of Christ is what cleanses us. It's what purifies us from all of our sin. The whole stress of purity is on the blood. He was a real victim. He was in real pain. This is a real reference to the sin that he atoned for. He was made a real curse for our salvation. The life is in the blood, Leviticus 17, 11, And the shedding of blood has brought us forgiveness. Listen to another Spurgeon quote. Rejoice in Christ's glory, but put your trust in Christ crucified. Look with longing to his second coming, but for the purification, rest upon his first coming. See in his agony and his death, your joy and life. Verse 14 again. What did he offer? He offered himself. Did he offer his blood? Yes, but he offered himself. Jesus came mind, will, and emotions to save you. Jesus, second member of the Trinity, said, fill in the blank, your name, I'm coming for you. He offered himself for you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. He counted you a friend. He laid himself in front of the shooter and died for you. Took three bullets, right? two in the hands and one in the feet to save you and me. There's no stronger way to put this. He was the alabaster box that was broken for us. He came also in verse 14 without blemish. He was perfect, perfectly acceptable to the father. All of this, by the way, is, is describing verse 11. He went into the more perfect tent, went in without blemish, He himself went in as the high priest. He appeared. This is his first coming. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not like Uzziah did, not like Isaiah did. He went in perfectly without blemish. 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves. He didn't have to create a sacrifice for himself like all the other high priests had in prior times. It was by means of his own blood, which is perfect, thus securing an eternal redemption, eternal redemption. It's forever salvation. It's eternal. This ties together with another marker in verse 14. He came, it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. What does that mean? Well, a lot of people, most commentators immediately just gloss this as the Holy Spirit. They say, well, he came through the Holy Spirit and he, he did minister through the power of the Holy Spirit. No doubt the spirit of God rested on him at baptism. The father, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He did everything according to the father's will by the power of the spirit. I understand that. But this is broader. This is talking about Christ. This is a very Christocentric text. It does mention the Father. This does allude to the Holy Spirit. But this is speaking about Christ, who is a member of the Godhead. Yes, two natures, one person, fully God and fully man, fully eternal God as part of the Godhead and fully man. He had the, na- the man's nature. He had natural life in a perfect man, but this is speaking of Christ as divine who willingly offered himself in concert with the Godhead. We need to know this. Why? Because Christ's atonement is without limit. It is, it is endless in its value for you. It's applied only to believers, but it is unlimited in its value. It's powerful to solve everyone's sin, all who will believe. It can never cease to operate. Its purging power is forever. Jesus is forever. And throughout all of eternity, not just here on earth and all the sins, past, present, and future that are covered, it's all of eternity. The blood of Jesus is always constantly applied to your account. You're made clean, and this cleansing power is forever applied to you and to me. Verse 7 of 1 John 1, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have perfect koinonia with each other. Compare that to the Old Testament. You had to do it to stay in fellowship externally. This is an internal cleansing. This is the immaterial meeting, the immaterial soul. We have fellowship with one another on a spiritual level, and the blood of Jesus His son cleanses. This is why you learn some Greek sometimes. This is the present active indicative for cleansing. It's continually cleansing your account. Cleanses us from all sins continually. It's important to be able to take this truth from head to heart for joy. Do you see that? It's that simple. It's beyond a theology lesson. Back to verse 13 for a second, the ashes of heifer, they were mixed with water. They'd sprinkle um, things externally, but compare that with the eternal spirit. And I like how this was put. Spurgeon, he was talking about Israelites. He said an Israelite who would be sprinkled by the ashes of a heifer or go through blood sacrifice and all of that, they would do that because God told them to do that. It's the son going to the parent. Why can't I do that? Because I said so. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament is, look, why can't I do that? Well, or what do I do with a sin? Well, 
Jesus died for your sins, was buried, fully God, fully man, rose again. That atoning work, even in our finite minds, we're so much farther along than an Israelite in his understanding of the Messiah, that connection to the red heifer. They're going, okay, red heifer, okay, sacrifice, got to do it, got to do it. I've worked it through. Okay, I'm good. That's the level of the Old Testament Israelite. In the new covenant, we're going, it all meant Jesus and Jesus did this for me and I can rest in him. And I have a biblical vision of Jesus that's hitting my heart. And so I can apply it and be happy again, even though I sin. It's not an excuse to sin, but it sure is the necessary cleansing agent to get us through. Only believers, I said this last week, only believers can have a cleansed conscience. We're the only ones. Out of all the millions who are unbelievers, who are dying, lost, going to hell, who are living in a living hell, they can't get over certain things. All they can do is try to check out and forget, right? They're ignoring their conscience. They're they're anesthetized to their conscience. They're trying to inoculate themselves from their conscience. They're trying to run from their conscience. They're trying to forget about things. They're trying to block out bad things, right? Christians could say, no, I was this bad and far worse. And only the Holy Spirit knows how bad I really was, but you covered it all anyway. Praise God, I can take another step, right? That's what Christians get. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. No truth charms the spirit like the truth of atonement by vicarious suffering. That is that Jesus took our place. That means vicariousness. He stood in our place. I feel my conscience is quieted by every drop of that blood. We receive the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and it cleanses us from all sins. And our conscience whispers, we are cleansed from all sin. We read about it. Then our conscience takes what we read and whispers back to us. We're cleansed. Conscience, our whole conscience feels cleansed. Our spirit, our mind. Look at this. Our memories are cleansed. Our thoughts, our intellect, our affections. It's what makes us fit to serve rather than being in quarantine and feeling infected by everything we do. We're living sacrifices. So how should Christ's precious blood work for us? Listen, you're going to sin. You're going to stain your conscience. You'll do it. You'll do it today. And you'll digress even back into dead works to try to fix it. Repent of the dead works, repent of the sins, and go to the cross. Are you willing to stay in dead work mode? No. Say it with me, class. No. We have the gospel. You don't have to say all of it, but you can say that, you know. God's will becomes our will when we are in this mindset. Christ will cleanse your conscience if you let him. And when you're cleansed, you'll begin to say with the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. His fellowship is better. Christianity is better. Running a race with purpose is better. Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. He's better. He's at the finish line. It's better. It's a better life. Joy in the Christian life is better. If you're not a believer, believe, believe this gospel and enter into a cleansed conscience. As a believer though, inform and apply this daily. 